Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor, and I'm recovering from my second Pfizer shot as we speak. I got it about 24 hours ago. So if I just start dozing off in the middle of this narration, you'll know why. Because I'm feeling a little bit loopy, but I guess that's how you know it's working. (laughs) Anyway, as I said, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this month has been a busy one which is why today's podcast episode features three guests, each discussing a separate issue, all of which are pegged to some of the things that have been going on in the last few days. On the world stage, the most excitement took place in Russia's unraveling relations with the Czech Republic. Moscow and Prague have been busy booting out each other's diplomats and suspected spies. Currently, the total expulsion count is something like 80 officials, most of them Russian. The whole fiasco kicked off on April 17th, when the Czech authorities accused Russian military intelligence of destroying some ammunition depots in 2014, in explosions that killed two people. Three days before that bombshell drop, police officers in Moscow raided the newsroom of the student journal Doxa, as well as the homes of four editors, who are now under house arrest pending felony charges for sharing a video on social media this January that urged Russian students not to give in to university administrators who were trying to scare students out of protesting in support of Alexei Navalny. Russia's federal media regulator forced the journal to unpublish the video, arguing that it incited young people to join illegal demonstrations. Doxa's editors complied with the takedown orders, but challenged the decision in court. And one of the biggest domestic news stories in Russia in the last week was Alexei Navalny's hunger strike and his health status in prison. As I sat down to edit and record today's episode, Navalny actually announced that he's ended the hunger strike, following protests in dozens of cities across Russia this Wednesday, a day after he was apparently examined at a civilian hospital. Navalny's team of private doctors is still calling for his long-term transfer to a civilian facility and demanding direct access to their patient, but they asked Navalny to call off the hunger strike on Thursday, and he did so a day later on Friday. He's still in prison, though, of course. On this podcast, I usually try to zero in on a single news story, but this week was just too jam-packed to accommodate that approach. So again, just to orient you here, our three stories today are the Russian spy operation in the Czech Republic, the crackdown on the student journal Doxa, and living conditions behind bars in Russia today. Investigative reporters at Bellingcat reported this week that Colonel General Andrei Averyanov, a senior deputy to the head of the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence, personally supervised at least six Russian military intelligence operatives in the explosion of a Czech munitions depot on October 15th, 2014. Averyanov traveled to Europe undercover using a pretty stupid alias, it turns out, in one of only two known occasions when he directly set foot in the field for one of these secret ops. To learn more about these events, I spoke to Bellingcat Research and Training Director Eric Toller. Why is it so important that this uh, Colonel General Andrei Averyanov personally supervised this operation? And like, why on earth would he need to like be on the ground there for this sort of thing? Because, you know, reading your report, I'm... In my mind, I'm like, wow, this is really in, in, intense that this chief guy went out there to supervise it. But then it's like, why the why the f- would he go do something like that? Yeah, no, it's weird. Yeah, it's a good question. So when we look at other things, like other big operations that have gone down, you know, like the Skripal poisoning and the you know the Montenegro thing, all the hackings. I guess he doesn't need to be around for the hacking. It's more. But this is the only one we can find. There's another in 2015. We're not totally, totally different. They we're not sure about. But this is really the only one that Avriano has 
actually gone to, like physically, like been present for. Because we have, at least that we know of, we have his travel records under his name and also his his pseudonym, which is kind of funny. So the, this guy under Avriandov, he's the kind of the big boss of the, this GRU unit you've been hearing about. So he's all the unit does all the poisonings and hackings and all the nasty stuff. It's unit number 29155. It's based out of Northwest Moscow. And he's kind of the, the big boss in charge of this. He's kind of like, he like directly reports to, to the head of the jury most often. Sometimes we even have some, because we've got his phone calls. Uh, he's even called like Lavrov and stuff too. So he's pretty high up. And he travels under a fake identity of Avryanov. So his real name is Avryanov and his fake ID is Avryanov. But the only difference is the first letter is an O instead of an A. And there's a Miyakis, there's no Miyakisnak. So in his real name, it's Avryanov with an A and then a Miyakisnak after the R. And for his big identity, he doesn't have that. So this is the, the really the only trip that we really know about that he's actually been around for. And it's it's, it's strange, but, but there's six people who went to this mission that we know of. So, of course, the famous screwball poisoners, Mishkin and Chupika, you know, guys who did the RT interview. And you have two guys who flew into Budapest who on a diplomatic passport. So this guy, he flew in, this guy, the guy named Kampinos, he, uh, or Kampinos, I don't know, I don't know Greek, I don't know how to pronounce it. He's a Russian guy who is a diplomat, and he flew in a diplomatic passport with a diplomatic pouch. And he also did the same thing with the script was in too shortly before then. He also flew into London with a diplomatic pouch too. So this is the bag man. Are they putting the like the poison and the explosives in the diplomatic pouch or what's what's going on? Maybe. Possibly. <laughs> That's possible. Right? Is it actually possible? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> or like the detonators or something, right? Like maybe not the actual like explosive parts. I don't know how bombs work very well very well, but we think maybe like the detonators or something. And it's very possible that the Novi Trope came with him too, because again, diplomatic passport, you can sneak it in. Yeah. Right. So you think they're at the, that that's the that's the logical reason for using the diplomatic cover is that they're actually sneaking contraband? Yeah, I mean, we obviously mm-hmm. don't. I mean, we don't have we don't have you know a copy of his pouch or whatever. Right. There's only so much we can get with data with you know phone data and travel records. We can't like you know obviously the contents of the pouch won't be known. But I mean, yeah, this this is a you know a diplomatic guy who's working at the GRU and he flew into Budapest shortly before because Budapest, Vienna, and Prague are all roughly equidistant from the from the arms depot that exploded in northeast Czechia. And he did the siege. Also flew into London very shortly before the screw all poisoning. So there's kind con- you know clearly there's there's a pattern here. This guy, you know, kind of appearing shortly before bad things that are going on. I had a sourcing question. I don't know if, if you're able to answer, but in the report, you mentioned that Major General Denis Denis Sergeyev and Lieutenant Colonel Yegor Gardienka, they fly into Switzerland and then they rent a car and they put about 340 miles on it. How do you know that? Do, are, there, are there car rental records available on the black market? Yes and no. Because there's a there's a hacker group called Black Mirror that got into his inbox. They do a lot of GRU hacking stuff. They, and this was in- do they deliberately target the GRU as a political kind of thing? Yeah, it seems like it. Hmm. Yeah, they previously got. We wrote a piece a while ago, a few months ago, about this guy that they hacked. He's a senior GRU guy, and his hmm. inbox was leaked like entirety. Yep. And they announced this in their Telegram, and we got a copy of it and everything. It had lots of fun stuff in there, including um, some Mix Seventeen related stuff. And wow. they also got this guy, this Gordienko guy, and, and within his phone, his inbox were receipts, car receipts for a car rental. And you know, we've been sitting on some of this stuff for a while. Like we had the phone records and the travel records and some, you know, these leaked inboxes and stuff. And, but we never really knew how they pieced together. Uh, like we knew Avriana flew into Vienna, you know, shortly before this explosion. But we had, you know, we didn't really think to look into this explosion because, you know, v- this is in Vienna and that was, in, you know, outside of in Czechia. But now that we kind of, you know, this police, the Czech police came out about this explosion now we kind of realize like oh wait like this is all this random seemingly like random stuff all going into um, central europe actually is all connected do you have any sense of how they hack the gru people is it like phishing or is it who knows i probably yeah i'm not sure uh, we, we i'm guessing it's probably phishing because when you look at some of these guys just for example the, the fbi put out 
it most wanted stuff for some of those Jerry hacker guys who were involved in DNC hack and the you know the Olympic boat mm-hmm. Olympic doping hack and whatever. They include their names and phone number, you know, not their phone number, their names, right. date of birth, whatever. And it's not very hard to figure out what their email is because you know you just plug in and do some, some Telegram bots or check VK or whatever, and you can check what their emails are because it's connected to their like public identity. And you can plug some of those emails into there's these sites. There's one called IntelX. There's another one called Ghost Project. There's a bunch of these sites that collect leaked credentials. And the idea behind them is, if you're an InfoSec, Info Security researcher, you know, for example, I'm the you know I'm the IT official at Mellencat, and I tell one of these sites you can pay for your service. Like every time there's a new data breach, a new leak, alert me. If every time there's a at Mellencat.com email address, give me an alert that there is a data leak, so I can tell the employee to change your password. Right. But you can also use these the other way around. You can actually input some of these emails and they'll tell you what their password is, their linked credentials, whatever. And even some of these, you know, big bad hackers who hack the DNC and all this stuff, if you put in some of their like Yandex and MailWebRu and Rumbler emails, which they, they use, you can you can see their passwords on there that are just right there. And they one guy, one jury hacker used a password, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for his password. That's the same password I have in my luggage. <laughs> so you know, this is a big elite <laughs> hacker and they use these very easy to guess passwords. So we don't know exactly what they did. They didn't really disclose their methods, but I, I, I would definitely strongly suspect they just used, just found their like reused, recycled passwords it, because you know these guys are aren't geniuses, even though they even though they do all this nasty stuff, they, they aren't exactly geniuses when it comes to things like account security, operational security, or whatever. Michigan and Chipiga, I guess, when they were in Prague, and this is in October 2014, around the time of the just before the the, the explosions. They apparently posted something on social media, and I was wondering, is that just another example of kind of them being stupid, or was that supposed to be part of their cover story? Because I know they were supposed to be there as arms arms purchasers or whatever, dealers, I guess, posing as that, right? So why on earth are they putting selfies on Instagram or wherever it was? Yeah, this is kind of like the double-sided nature of these guys. Like, on one hand, you think, like, you know, they're these slick spies, or poisoning people, they're blowing stuff up, they're doing all this crazy stuff, but they're also, like, kind of idiots, too. So they were on, you know, officially these Mishkan and Chibiga have, I guess, three identities. They have Mishkan and Chibiga, their, their real identities. They have Bashirov and Petrov, which is their, their things. They got their visas in, like when they went, you know, to the UK and to the EU, this is their visa name. And they also have a third fake identity with fake passports because the other ones are real passports issued by the Russians. So like it's fake identity, but a real passport. They also have uh, a third identity with fake passports, fake Tajik and fake Moldovan passports with a third fake identity. And so they traveled to Czechia under their fake their fake identities, real passports, you know, Petrov and Bashirov. But then they were going to go to visit, visit this arms depot under the ID under the fake ID of these Tajik and Moldovan arms dealers or arms manufacturers or whatever. And so, so they show up at the arms depot and they're like, "Here's our ID," but they're showing fake. They passports. supposedly never showed up. Actually, showed up officially. Oh, right. You know, they may. I mean. Clearly, they were they were there trying to get there, but they never officially showed up or checked in. But they you know got information, whatever. It's also this is just a side detail, but also um, BBC has noted that the person who emailed to, to arrange this, like I have two of my people coming in to visit the depot, there you know here are their IDs or whatever, was a guy whose name was Andre O, and who was from Russia, which is Andre Avryanov, who was the the big boss. So this guy apparently he actually set up the meet right under his fake ID for whatever. Anyways, so they they were officially you know visiting as arms dealers or whatever to visit this depot, but also on the eleventh, which is the day they got in there, who's the you know with the our team reviews, there's the kind of who's the the guy with the buzz cut and the guy with the goatee. So goatee guy is is Chipika. 
he um, posted a picture on Facebook under the name his cover name Ruslan Bushirov, which showed him near the astronomical clock in Old Town Square in Prague. And it, it was very bizarre because it's just like an empty profile. He's like, you know, this is where I work, which is like some like fake place he worked. Here's my high school, and here's my name, Ruslan Bashirov. And it's a picture of Old Town Square, which is kind of strange. And there's like one like on the photo, and it's some Ukrainian woman. I think the Daily Mail got a hold of her back in 2018, 17, a while. And she was saying, like, you know, some guy, I was at a you know cafe in Prague, and this guy was hitting me up, was hitting on me. And so I told him, if we, you know, if you want to talk, you know, add me on Facebook, because I don't have, you know, VK or whatever you're on, add me on Facebook. So what he did is he, like, snapped a picture of where he was, because he probably was at a cafe in a tourist place, and then tried to add her on Facebook, because he wanted to chat her up and you know, whatever. He's married, by the way, so his wife found out about this um, the same way we all married with a kid, even. So, yeah. So he, what he did is he, you know, he got a little too worked up, and <laughs> he posted this, you know, he probably thought that, you know, just throw away profile and register this, and the woman try to, you know, hang out with her in the lead up to the operation. But, you know, like, on one hand, you know, these are big, dangerous, you know, guys, but they're also, you know, just got um he was thinking with his pants, I guess, with you know, trying to hit this girl up in the, from the cafe. Yeah. Right. Maybe it wasn't fishing. Maybe it was a honey trap. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe, you, maybe the Ukrainian intelligence set that up. Right. <laughs> I know that you have future reporting coming out about this, but I was wondering if maybe you could tease a little bit about what the motives could possibly be for this, for this apparently pretty sizable Russian secret operation to take out an ammunition depot in, in in the Czech Republic? Right. So there's a lot of stuff going on linked to this guy named Gebrev, who was this Bulgarian arms dealer manufacturer who he he was also subject of an assassination attempt. He was poisoned by some of the same people who were who were involved in all this stuff we're talking about. He you know, people were involved in both operations. He was poisoned, they didn't they didn't succeed, they tried though. Because what happened he's given some weird conflicting statements. But in short, he had some arms that were in uh, arms depot in Czechia. So this is a Bulgarian arms manufacturer. He was selling stuff to going to sell some stuff to Ukraine to the Ukrainian government. And the idea, no one knows exactly what the goal was for the explosion. But some people think, you know, blow it up on the spot. You know, that's why you have six people there who make sure it all goes off correctly. But also these guys aren't the most competent ever. You know, they have these failed assassinations. You know, the guy clearly got, you know, opened the Facebook account to shout out the girl. You know, they're not the most careful. So some people think that this is supposed to explode in transit on the way to Ukraine. Or maybe like maybe if it stops in Bulgaria, it stops there too. You know, maybe they were just supposed to blow up there in Czechia because maybe, you know, they were trying to make a, make a statement of, you know, don't don't sell the stuff to Ukraine, whatever. And yeah, so it, it's kind of shady because he has made a lot of conflicting statements about get yeah, this is the Bulgaria. Bulgarian arms dealer about what he was doing. He's given some very shifty statements about like, I've not sold any weapons that originated in the Czech Republic to sell to Ukraine, but like, well, yeah, they didn't start in the Czech Republic. That's just where they were, you know, kind of the layover before they went to Ukraine. So he's made some kind of shifty statements about this. And so we think that's probably the something related to this, you know, kind of as a, he was one of the, you know, he may have been going around some EU and US sanctions of selling some of these weapons in the way he did. He did kind of a kind of a roundabout way. And Russia may have, this is again, the early days of the war, right? This is October, 2014, right? You know, right when things were heating up after the summer. So this could have been, you know, maybe it was a statement of, you know, don't mess with, you know, don't, you know, Bulgaria is our backyard. And I guess, you know, Czechia is our backyard. It's one thing for the, you know, for the Balts to do this because the Balts hate us already. It's one thing for the UK or the US to do it, but, you know, for the Bulgarian or from the Czechs to sell arms or give arms to Ukraine, that's, you know, that's 
don't do that, right? So it may just been a statement. Maybe it was just the long-standing feud they had with this Bulgarian arms dealer. You know, maybe it was very, very specific. Maybe they, I don't remember what it was, but you know, maybe the very specific arms they were sending over something they didn't want. You know, like if it was like anti-tank stuff or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure, but for whatever reason, they definitely you know they clearly it was important because Avryanov himself uh, flew into Vienna for this, and you know they had six different guys who were part of this operation, at least six. So clearly it was a priority for whatever reason it was, but it could just be kind of, you know, disputes among, you know, the elites and arms and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly why, but it's something related to this. You are the sexual hero That's a state investigator telling Vladimir Mitelkin that she found his Instagram account online and thinks he's sexy. Metelkin is one of four DOXA editors now under house arrest in a felony case against the student journal. The investigator's bizarre flirtations were part of an attempt to exert pressure on him during questioning, says Metelkin and his lawyer. To find out more about what's happening here, I spoke to Mstislav Grivachov, another editor at DOXA who described how the publication blends journalism and activism in a way that would make it very difficult to manage all this from abroad. So DOXA is, it, it was initially a student organization at the Higher School of Economics. And as I understand it, the journal positions itself now as a publication sort of about university life in Russia and the problems of, of social and humanitarian knowledge. And I've also read that DOXA sort of embraces, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, DOXA embraces a kind of left-wing perspective. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain for listeners, like, what, is, what does all that mean? Not just the left-wing stuff, but also like, you know, like if somebody, presumably a lot of the listeners to the, of this podcast, since it's in English, you know, they, they're not going to be able to read DOXA. They may have heard about it, hopefully if they're reading Medusa and so on and other, other news outlets, but they don't necessarily know, you know, if you were to like go to the website and start reading it, like, what, what is it? What's it all about? Can you, can you tell me? While DOXA was starting as this academic humanitarian knowledge journal, it it was evolving and now we could use, I think the magazine would be uh, a bit more appropriate, but maybe a newspaper or some kind of, you know, political, political media would be more appropriate. That said, I'm not saying that DOXA is political. We could say that, uh, you know, the medium in the political spectrum of our editors is left-leaning but still we you couldn't really see that in our coverage because we try uh, our best to fit the journalistic you know objective objectivity status when we're covering our things so so in terms of dox's coverage what exactly are you writing i know lately especially you've been writing a lot about you know your own your own case and we'll, we'll be getting to that but is it entirely coverage of pressure that students face in Russian universities, or is it also just coverage of like scholarly studies? Like what exactly, what's the material that occur, that appears? So this thing whole started when we started to see some injustice, first of all, in high school of economics. Uh, we seen some examples of harassment by the, you know, by, by some lecturers and tutors at the university. And we were starting to get some you know, coverage and docs uh, started to become more, you know, renowned back in maybe 2019. And then we started getting messages about similar cases happening in universities across Russia. And we started covering that. And so then the, we started to make some investigations covering this. We started cooperating with other prominent Russian media, for example, iStories, which we managed to do a really good uh, investigative journalism or using data science with them. Some other, Novaya Gazeta, for example, uh, was our partner for a long time. 
So yeah, in this regard, we started to be, I think we could call ourselves maybe the main media in Russia covering student academia and teachers problems, and not just, you know, students, but also teachers problems, because we're covering, for example, also the, how would say it, the union, the union strikes in the UK happening for the last two years, as you could see, like last year it was really intense, but the COVID, you know, messed up a lot of things. So yeah, we're covering uh, not just the students' problems, but of course, during the last years, it wasn't our desire, but the political team shifts so rightly. So it was the students, mostly, but not just the students who were receiving the, who needed to receive the coverage we were trying to, you know, give them. And so skip ahead to, Earlier this month, on April 14th, the Moscow Police Department, or I guess, I don't know if it was specifically Moscow cops, but it was law law enforcement in Moscow. They raid Docs' newsroom and the homes of four different editors who are now under what is effectively house arrest. They, they can't go outside and they can't use the internet. Pending felony charges that, that could actually send them to prison for as many as, as actually three years, as I understand it. And the case apparently concerns some video that DOXA released on January 23rd ahead of what were going to be the, the latest protests, you know, in support of, of Alexei Navalny, who, who at the time was already, I think, being held in, in pretrial detention or something like that. And officials in Moscow, they now say that this, this amounts to inciting young people to attend an un, unpermitted rally. You know, this is like a common... Uh, charge they bring against many uh, members of the media and members of the opposition. Can you tell me, like, what happened here exactly? Like, what's what was this video, and what's wh- how did the how did these raids go down? So I think I'll start with the January the twenty third, yeah. a week before the January the protest of January twenty fourth. They were announced first mm-hmm. by the foundation uh, by the anti corruption foundation. You know, the organization that you know that was funded by Alexei Navalny. And they announced these protests and they announced this process on the week, at the end of the week, at Saturday. And then we were starting to get messages. We were starting to get messages to our bots in Telegram from different students from different universities across Russia facing lots of oppression. Uh, and so lots of, you know, sudden changes in schedule they were, they were facing from the universities. For example, some of them were you know, fairly plainly speaking that they are the students who would attend this process could face sanctions from, you know, losing their academic practice, from losing their, you know, career perspectives up to being excluded from the university, from being expelled. So yeah, so it was it was a bit different, but we were getting these messages, and then right before the protest, Doxa published the video, one and a half minute video, where four of our editors uh, are urging these students not to be intimidated by the actions of these administrations of these universities because they are Ill- illegal, because we have a constitution that we have a right to go on the streets and protest peacefully. And of course, if these, you know, actions from the universities, they were anti-constitutional. And what about Docs's future? I mean, if, if these four editors end up, you know, in prison for, for three years, that's the maximum penalty here, which is, I mean, it sounds ins- insane. It sounds very extreme. What, how, with the journal, does the journal plan to continue operating? And if so, you know, what kind of safety measures will the staff take? Like, I know that with the Navalny's movement, which is also facing a high degree of, of persecution and legal prosecution and so on. Some of their ch- chief people have now just fled abroad and they're now, you know, they're in self-exile essentially. Is that something that you're discussing at DOXA? I mean, if, if, 
Is it, is it going to be dangerous to have your own staff in Russia? It is tricky because I'm not sure whether like a media could operate, media about Russia could operate while being in another country. And so we could see examples of like different prominent people in Russia. I wouldn't say fleeing, but you know, just, you know, moving out of the country to save themselves and they would lose this connection with Russia. They were still experts and they were still nice people to hear, but you could sold this cap and you could see that they're not following as much as they would follow being in this country. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we're considering going out i would say no i'd say that even before like the rest we had a, a quite strict protocol on you know on safety and we are enlarging and we're extending the measures in it and we are i think we're pretty much we were we were quite ready and this regard we weren't ready you know in our minds but the procedures were in and we're still i think we're still ready. I say talking about the editors right now on the, on the house arrest. I'm not, I don't have the expertise to assess, but we are thinking that the, you know, the jail thing is uh, quite unlikely, you know, considering none of these people, none, none of those editors have any, you know, legal baggage around them. They don't have any, you know, I would say prior convictions. Yeah. Yeah. Prior convictions yeah. and prior, prior criminal records. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's quite unlikely. And I, th- we, we, I think not, not just, con- I wouldn't say convinced, but many editors at Doctor are not convinced that this is just a measure to intimidate our media and some other media or some other independent media, uh, in Russia. So yeah, I think we're just continuing our work and we're not planning to, you know, to go out or something. I, th- I think actually after this case, many editors who weren't as engaged with the, with the things we're doing, they became so, and like the amount of time we spent in Doxa since last week, it, I think it doubled, troubled, maybe fourbled. So I just. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it was immense. It, it, it was a great run and it still is. Does a lot of the work that you're doing now, does it involve going out into the field and actually speaking to people face to face? Are you mostly kind of collecting re- reports from students, uh, you know, o- online? Because I guess when you say you, you think it'd be difficult to do DOXA from abroad, I wonder, does that mean that you're actually going out physically on feet, on foot a lot? Or are you, or is it mostly kind of working with materials that come to you through the internet? It is an interesting question. Yeah, I think in our investigative journalism, it is both, and I am a witness of you know, both methods. Of course, in some you know, some data examples, we were looking, uh, we were working from our laptops, but I'd still say that being here is still an, like, an immense part of what we're doing. We are, I know, for example, when we are collecting, you know, letters in support of some kind of activist student guy. In this regard, DOXA is in part a journalistic media, but in part an activist organizations and not a political one. I would underline because we were just trying to protect the rights of uh, students who go into us. We're not going with the political statements. We're not saying we are supporting, you know, Alexei Navalny. Mm-hmm. We're just against the things that the, the government is right now doing with him. And we think this illegal, but it doesn't mean that we are, you know, we will vote or for him in the elections. So, yeah, so uh, it's a bit tricky. And this, uh, of course, goes, goes on towards how a certain person defines what is political and what is not. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think being here is essential for what Doxy is doing. On the final segment of today's show, 
I thought we'd close out with a look at the conditions in Russian prisons, where opposition politician Alexei Navalny just concluded his hunger strike after about three weeks, but remains incarcerated, obviously, for the next two years and change. To get a sense of what it's like behind bars in Russia, the Naked Pravda welcomes back Ksenia Runova, a junior researcher at the Institute for the Rule of Law at the European University at St. Petersburg. The most stereotypical, I think, like assumption is that nothing much has changed since the gulag and that, you know, you send somebody to a Russian prison and they're being they're essentially always being sent to Siberia. They have a big fur cap on and they're chopping lumber or something like that. Like that's the kind of epitome of, I think, the Americans' expectation of Russian prison is that it's it's basically, you know, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich or something like that. I should say that the most Russian convicted people, they in uh, corrective colonies, it's colonies in some se- sense the same to colonies uh, in the Gulag. The, tam, the, there are large rooms from 50 to 100 people, but only about 40% of male prisoners work. This is uh, difference, different from uh, Gulag, which was connected with forced labor and the very hard conditions on this labor works. 40% is not a very large number and unemployment uh, is connected to a lack of production orders, low qualification of prisoners, low wages and uh, motivation to work. And also we should say that prison system in Russia become more humanitarian. They have more rights actually. For example, they can receive visits from their relatives and even long-term term visits, uh, up to three days with their spouse uh, or close relatives. And also they can get food packages and and only 1% of inmates in Russia were most gray crimes and they placed in uh, prisons. The, the, the most prisoners in, in colonies and uh, only 1% in prisons where they live in small cells and have less rights. And also we have the lowest security level facilities such as penal settlements and uh, correctional centers. Correctional centers is for the sentence for compulsory work. 6% penal settlements are organized as dormitories, but inmates can leave the facility and live with their families inside the, some territory but not in, in the colony. And and how does medical treatment at a penal colony compare to the care that Russians can get at, at civilian hospitals? Uh, formerly, the medical staff of correctional facilities and prison hospitals don't obey the head of the facility. They report to a head uh, doctor and they have own medical chain of subordination. However, in uh, practice, Doctors continue to work in conditions of informal subordination of the prison administrations. Therefore, they may not always work independently in the best interest of the patient. For example, it's difficult to save medical confidentiality. Correctional officer may be present when the doctor communicates with the patient, for example. What about hunger strikes? Are they very typical in Russian prisons? And like, how do they... How do they usually end after they've begun? Prisoners choose hunger strike in cases when other 
instruments of protection, their rights uh, didn't work. They want to either change living conditions and the prison officers' attitude, stop violence against them, or protest against court decision or authorities. A prison administration doesn't work to attract the attention of the respective regional prison service department, uh, prosecutors, officer, human rights defenders, and the media. Therefore, they can offer the prisoners something in exchange for ending the hunger strike. The same is true for other forms of uh, self-harm. If the administration of facility can fulfill a requirement or uh, offer something in return and uh, it doesn't cost uh, too much, a hunger strike can be effective in this case. However, if we're talking about political prisoners, then the rules are different here and in many cases the administration of correctional facility cannot fulfill the requirement. For political prisoners, the main thing is to draw attention to the problem. A hunger strike helps to, to do this and because of that it, it's effective too. Since Navalny's kind of the reason for talking about conditions in prisons right now. He's been putting out statements regularly. And so one of the questions that I've had and others I think have had as well is how do inmates like Navalny maintain ties with the outside world while they're incarcerated? I know that he's able to meet with his lawyer every now and then. Is that his only connection to the outside world or are inmates like in his position, do they have other ways of talking to people. Uh, yeah, Navalny is not a typical inmate. He has great support of people, lawyers, human rights defenders, and so on. Most of the prisoners do not have this kind of support. The main agents uh, who help to keep in touch with the outside world for prisoners, relatives and lawyers, they try to get uh, visits, communicate uh, with them uh, by phone or emails and some other tools, members so public monitoring com commissions also inform the public about prisoners and about political prisoners too. But some of them associated with the prison system. For example, they used to work there and therefore they can conceal information. And yeah, I think that uh, in most cases, political, all, even political inmates have the opportunity to communicate with, with their lawyers and relatives with, with the visits or, or uh, phone calls or something like that and emails. But sometimes they have, they uh, hide from uh, the public and uh, they, they can be located, uh, placed to the isolators and the, how to, how to say. No, cells, very small cells, punishment cells, and they in these cells they have an opportunity to to speak, to communicate with their lawyers and uh, relatives. But they, they are in most political inmates. They are in more they, they are protected in because they have this opportunity to show their problems to public and to media and media want to to share this information with public and but 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 uh, regular typical prisoners they have not such opportunity and they in uh, danger in in larger degree mm -hmm. 
You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from Bellingcat Research and Training Director Eric Toller about Russian military intelligence agents' apparent involvement in a covert operation in the Czech Republic. Then I spoke to Mstislav Grivachov, an editor at Doxa, about a felony case against the student journal. And finally, I asked Ksenia Ronova, a junior researcher at the Institute for the Rule of Law at the European University at St. Petersburg, about living conditions behind bars in Russia, where Alexei Navalny is spending his time these days. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And next week, gee gosh, we might just talk about Russia's law on foreign agent media outlets, just for the fun of it. Anyway, this is Kevin Rothrock, hoping you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening and come back soon. <laughs>